as he careens off the road. <laughs> but he just runs. He just keeps running because the ground underneath him has disappeared, right? So now it's like he's he's <laughs> running in the air. <laughs> <laughs> and he just like, like, crashes into the bush, just completely gone. I managed I managed to like r- destroy my bike trying to stop the brakes are just like molten. Oh my god. And he comes, yeah. he comes out of the bush and he's just like covered in shit, right? We can't his bike is down the oh down the ditch. Yeah, that was yeah. that was funny. That, that was that was like on the I was like crying, laughing. Yeah, that is a funny story. I have have had my own share of uh, accidents <laughs> while bike riding, but that one was definitely so good. <laughs> oh my god, I feel lightheaded. My jaws, my cheeks, everything is hurting. Basically, these are cyclists who make videos who have a big following. I don't know if I've ever shared that channel with you. Safa Brian, he's from California and he posts like these downhill, like speed, like going really fast. Oh my God. He posts some really kick ass shit. That stuff's really cool. I really wish I had this kind of tack back when I was racing all the time. I feel like that's an entire (laughs) part of my, my life that was like totally undocumented, where if it was now, it'd be like such professional quality videography everything well since you didn't document it it never happened (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah, exactly it's right now it's like i'm telling a lot of stories to my friends who are like oh yeah i did these things and like yeah but did you it's it's not on strava and there's no video so it's such a dilemma did this even happen (laughs) yeah yeah because, you know, at one point uh, in a, like an episode or two ago, we were talking. Well, it was the first episode when we were talking about what it was like when you started and there's no Internet, no any of that. Yeah. Like, so much of my life, I've been thinking like I recognizing so, such a large portion of my life is in this area where it's effectively undocumented and therefore doesn't exist. It yeah. never happened. Yeah. You know what? In fact, I remember when I was, I didn't have like any fancy gear, nothing. I had one bike. Like right now, the bikes that we have are like carbon fiber or at least aluminum or something. This bike was probably made out of like wrought iron steel. And it was so <laughs> heavy. It was so heavy. Uh, it was called the Hero Ranger. You could see the welding everywhere. <laughs> there was not even an attempt to polish up that welding. Like on the bikes, <laughs> like you know this, like the bikes that we have now, you can't find the welding. Yeah. That's how seamless and uh, like my bike now probably weighs like as much as like my flip flops. I don't know. It's like super light, all carbon fiber. But yeah. back then, yeah. I have a friend who works for Specialized. But he's on their like counterfeit team. He's got a kind of a crazy job. So counterfeit team. Yeah. Because Wait, what? The, so factories in China will yeah. like make molds of like a, a specialized bike, for example. Right. But they'll do it for like bike frames, helmets, all this kind of stuff. But the quality isn't there. So like the, and the safety rigor isn't there. So you can buy a bike oh. for like really cheap. Right. Um, that literally looks exactly like a specialized bike or like a Giro helmet or something like that, right? And his team is responsible for going out and finding who's making this stuff and like shutting them down. 
And then he scours like eBay and Amazon and stuff like that and uses like a tip line. It's crazy what he has to do. But that's his whole job. His whole job is just to like find counterfeit shit and get rid of it. Oh my God. I wonder if like sort of like a counterfeit department exists with other bigger uh, brands and companies because that actually makes a lot of sense that let's say, you know, you buy a helmet thinking it's specialized and you, let's say, crash and you break your head. That's going to set people are going to be like, well, he was wearing a specialized helmet. That's exactly it. And so, yeah, they're not doing it because they they're worried about the brand. They're literally doing it for safety. Like, imagine you're riding down a hill and the yeah. bike just breaks in half. <laughs> right like, an episode of tom and jerry or roadrunner just played in my head <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah we're like carbon wheels are bad for that too even le- legit ones like mavic uh has had a lot of trouble recently before they sold of their wheels exploding and they're like a totally legitimate what? company yeah yeah. Their wheels exploded. Yeah. Oh, this is my a carbon God. fiber. The, the problem with carbon fiber wheels is that they're super stiff. They are quite strong. But uh, especially for rim brake versions, you uh-huh. can be going down a hill fast enough and braking for long enough that you generate enough heat on the, uh, on the rim uh-huh. uh, to actually compromise the integrity of the carbon fiber. And it'll weaken oh. over time. Okay, but this is for like rim brakes. If you have disc brakes, then you wouldn't have that problem. There's like this whole like, oh, we don't do disc brakes. Like they look at it like vegan food. They're like, oh my God, we're purists. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's amazing. Vegan food. It's like, it's like the rim brakes are seen as like the meat eaters and then disc brakes are seen as the vegans. (laughs) Well, a lot of bike. That's so so funny. A lot of bike tech actually comes from mountain biking first. Yeah, it always it's like led the tech, all the tech development because it's like so, except for aerodynamics, which are obviously like time trials and road cycling, it's a big deal. Mm-hmm. But for for mountain biking, like you have really difficult terrain, right? Like steep mm-hmm. hills, both up and down, stuff turning. So they've really led the way in tech. So not just brakes. So disc brakes were first introduced on mountain biking. But mm-hmm. also, um, like, there's now one buys where, like, before you had uh, your front rear derailleurs have like two or three chain rings. Mountain biking, ha- uh, they developed a single front chain ring in a massive uh, cassette at the back. And that's moving into road cycling now. That's more common. You only shift with one hand then at that point. Right. Obviously, because right now, okay, that makes sense. But then I, I see a huge merit in like having one giant ring and one small ring in the front, also because when you're going up, like, a super steep like i don't know what grade you call it because i know there's like i know there's like grades right like they say like you're going up a grade five four right whatever that is that's uh categories there's a category of of hill or mountain usually yeah and it's it's a determination of the average incline incline and the distance oh okay so like from five so there's there's a non-category which is basically everything around us then there's cat five, four, three, two, one, and then HC, which is or or category, which is like which means beyond effectively. Um, oh, so, so by the way, it, for context, for people listening, like we live in the city and it's all flat, primarily flat. There's like yeah. an occasional yeah. up and down. There's a rise. Yeah, it's like when you go to Scarborough Bluffs and you're 
you know, when you go down the Scarborough Bluffs towards the Bluffs, it's like you go like freaking like 80 kilometers an hour. <laughs> but when yeah, you come yeah. back up, you have to kind no, of get off. <laughs> <laughs> you have to get off? Uh, that's a test of manhood right there. You need to go up. <laughs> okay, so I'll be honest. I, I've i been uh, down and up the Scarborough Bluffs a couple of times. Only out of those couple of times, twice I made it up without getting off the bike. I remember when I was going up and I had gotten off once, these guys, like in full gear, like they were in, uh, it's called Le Col, Le Col or something. They're all in like black and they went up the hill so fast. And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> I remember uh, at one point I was, I was in, training in the Alps and we went for a bike ride for like, I don't know, 150 K or something. Uh-huh. And I was a sprinter. So I'm not a mountain goat. Climbing is not my thing. So I was like, gone, like dropped so fast, right? Like everyone else is like gone. And I had my coach in the car behind me this little, little, uh, Renault, this tiny little beater, just like meh, meh, on the horn. And I looked down <laughs> at my bike computer and I'm going at 4k an hour. <laughs> It's like if I got any slower, I would have just fallen <laughs> off the bike. I've been there. I know what you mean. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I, I had to do that for 40 minutes to get up to the fucking mountain. <laughs> and then you go down the other side at 80 to 100K an hour, right? <clears throat> oh, you know why I'm laughing so hard? Because it's like. When you're in that situation, you're like giving it your best. You've maxed out the gear range. Also, it's like yeah. maximum everything. And you're like, I, I can't do this. <laughs> Nothing. The only thing that kept me going was like saving face of falling off my bike. That was basically it. Yeah. The top of that hill. My friend waited for me. He waited for like 15 minutes for me to catch up. Right. We catch up. <laughs> we go down the other side of the hill and we're trying to catch everyone else. So we're taking risks. And there's one, there was this one section. I remember we were in the broad daylight because it was like 1 p.m. or something flying down this hill at like 80K an hour. And then you go into a forest. And as you enter the forest, it's pitch black because there's no light in there. So you don't know what's like, you're going to go in, but you have no idea what's happening after that. So we enter this forest and my bike is just like shaking. Uh, I was terrified. And we get in. (laughs) And as soon as we get in, there's a left hand turn. It's it's the fastest I, I at that point I've ever gone on my bike, and oh. and my friend was in front of me by like uh, maybe like ten or twenty meters. Right, we stayed uh-huh. far enough away from each other we wouldn't run into each other if someone yeah. braked. And I could all the only reason I knew there was a corner is because I heard him screaming <laughs> after he entered the forest, <laughs> and I could hear his brakes. Right, like Wah! I was like, oh shit. Oh my god! I I slow down like to sixty, not a lot, right? We enter, we both carve this corner, and of course there could be cars coming the other way too. But you're taking risks; you don't fly off the road. So, so we make that turn. You and it goes. You're still downhill the whole time, and at the other, like fifty meters later, there's a U-turn, and (laughs) so. By the time we both realize there's a U-turn, it is literally too late. He just goes straight. He lets go of the handlebar. 
The bike goes flying <laughs> as he careens off the road. <laughs> but he just runs. He just keeps running because the ground underneath him has disappeared, right? So now it's like he's he's <laughs> running in the air. <laughs> <laughs> and he just like, crashes into the bush, just completely gone. I managed I managed to like r- destroy my bike trying to stop the brakes are just like Molten. Oh my god. And he comes, yeah. he oh comes god. out of the bush and he's just like covered in shit, right? We can't his bike is down the oh down the ditch. Yeah, that was yeah. that was funny. That, that was that was like on the <laughs> I was like crying laughing yeah that is a funny story you know we look at like biking like oh my god like but like we imagine like sometimes i imagine like a girl riding a bike with like baguettes with a little basket in the front (laughs) (laughs) yeah are you it's just late at night that you're imagining (laughs) Because, like, you know, in cartoons, how they show, like, bike riding. Oh, my God. <laughs> and then yeah, I remember yeah, yeah. my bike having, like, these, like, really frilly, like, threads, like, coming out of the handles. But, yeah, like, if you get, like, hardcore into biking, it is freaking, it's pretty serious stuff, man. It can, right. it's, it's, it's so demanding. Work. Yeah. Okay. But it's so satisfying, isn't it? When you go, like, for, like, I think about it like this. When I go for, like, a nice bike ride, I get, like, firstly, it's, like, when you get in the gear, you clip in. And you put on everything. You feel like freaking Batman or like a superhero. And then when you get out there, it's like. Ah. It can be pretty relaxing. When you walk or like when you move to like a new city. And this is like, especially for me, because I'm so new to Toronto. Is by walking everywhere. And then on top of that, biking everywhere makes you feel so much more familiar with all the nooks and crannies and corners and streets and areas. Cause when you're going in a car or like public transportation, you really don't get the time to absorb the intimacies of nooks and corners. But when you're bike riding or walking, you see the city in yeah. such a different lens and it starts to feel more, in, you begin to have a much more intimate relationship with that city. Even though I feel like I'm a cyclist, I have a gear, I go cycling, you know, I'm on Strava blah blah but i think like that story that you were telling me that how like the bike culture is so deeply integrated into coffee and coffee shops oh yeah 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 i think i told you this at kensington way back yeah so uh, i used to live at a a place where uh there was a coffee shop that um that was associated with a bike club but they'd let you this is like like 20 years ago i feel like but they'd let you come to the shop to watch the Tour de France like super early, like 6 a.m. kind of thing. And that's when I really started to see like these coffee shops would spring up everywhere. And like every club in the city is associated with a coffee shop. And it's like a big social thing, which is pretty cool. Yeah. So it's, it's like part of the ride, right? Like you start at the coffee shop, you go for your group ride. Yeah. You probably stop somewhere at a coffee shop. If that's, that may even be your destination. Then you turn around, you come home. And you end up back at the coffee shop. Yeah, it's so funny because like even when I've been on rides and I didn't think of it like this, but inherently whenever I would go on rides with my friends, we would have like, okay, we're going to stop at that coffee shop and then we're going to stop at that coffee shop. And then on the <laughs> way back, like it was yeah. like, we didn't like, nobody told us that we have to go to a coffee shop, but it was just kind of was so natural to the activity that we were doing. 
I remember we would stop yeah. at like from Toronto, we would go stop at Port Credit first. There's a yep. Starbucks there. And then and then when we would uh, reach uh, Burlington right before, you know, that where that bridge is, there's yeah, another there's another really cute little coffee shop. Uh, I forgot the name of it up the street there. So we stopped there. You were telling me this interesting story about how Rafa as a brand established itself in the initial days and built like roots by tapping into this whole coffee culture and cycling. As a business, they're unique in that they provide like when you join membership there, they have physical locations where if you're a member, regardless of where you go in the world, you're able to like rent a bike or you know, get gear and basically they're there to help you get set up. So let's say you, uh, you're in Toronto. I don't actually think they have a store in Toronto, but if you were to like go to, um, LA for work or something, instead of taking your bike with you, you just show up in LA and you grab one of their store bikes, which are like impeccable. They're amazing. Yeah. Uh, and away you go. Right. And, um, but they, they really, the whole store is like an experience. It's certainly a merchandise store, but they also, rent their bikes they have a panic there but then they usually have like a coffee bar and it's a very sort of social environment it's very cool yeah i've been to the one in la yeah that's the one i was with a colleague of mine and she's like oh look rafa that's your favorite whatever i was like wait what and uh (laughs) (laughs) like i hadn't gone there with the intention of going to like rafa or anything but it would just happen to be in that street and I walked in and I was like, oh, every bike store that I've seen in my life before that was, uh, except for the one time I went to the giant bicycle store to buy my bike itself. But, yeah. uh, but outside of that, uh, all the bike stores I've been to in, in India are like, so like, they just look like workshops. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, yeah. it's like, yeah black tar everywhere and anyways but yeah i was like that was actually a really amazing experience it actually feels like you're in like a luxury not a luxury brand store but the experience is very well thought out and the products that they have they're like yeah they're like the apple of cycling clothing right like or their brand is of that quality it's so interesting you mentioned that because i think for such a long time like i used to work in a bike shop but when i went to college i needed a job and I honestly don't even know how I, I got, I was probably just like an ad or something. I literally don't know how I got in the door, but I got a job as a, like a salesperson at this bike shop in London, Ontario, selling bikes, probably off the back of the fact that, you know, I'd been riding them professionally, like as a part of my training program. So I could talk shop. And then the mechanic that was there after, like, he was a really nice guy. And he sort of like, I already knew how to take care of a bike, but there's a lot more to it. Like if you're really like deeply into it. And so he taught me a lot about how to like, you know, basically take any bike apart, put it back together, deal with hydraulics on a mountain bike to, um, how to put together like a really high end $20,000 road bike. That's yeah. insane. That's such a cool life skill to have to be, you know, to be able to chop wood and then learn how to assemble and assemble a bike. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> Yeah, it's good because if you need to, you can chop the bike and burn it. Uh, expensive fire, though. Imagine your friend, once he fell off the Whoa. bike on that U-turn, 
he just burnt the bike. <laughs> <laughs> like, fuck this. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. That was a that was a really fun experience. It was uh really a couple of years I did it for, and then the, the shop sh- I left or the shop shut down or something. But um yeah. but my point is, my point is it was very much like like uh grungy kind of it was mostly a bike shop right a mechanic shop so it was definitely just like you know parts everywhere and grease everywhere and dirt everywhere and and then like oh we have these shiny expensive bikes in the corner right yeah oh man i I think for a long time bike shops like that like like that sort of like underground i don't know just like low cost sort of vibe like more of a chill vibe which is why i think the coffee thing sticks because it's a chill kind of vibe but then you have these brands, these bike brands that just like sort of really marketing to the masses and they're wildly expensive, right? Like compared to like the Walmart $300 bike, you're going out and buying, you know, a road bike for like, or a mountain bike for $5,000. Right. And I think Rafa, probably amongst, among others, but Rafa looked at that and was like, you know, however they managed to go about it, they have positioned their brand as being the premier high end couture of cycling so yeah man this stuff costs so much money it's a fantastic quality but it costs so much money i actually have like a perspective on this which is that so i when i was out in the market looking for like professional gear professional like proper gear to bike ride in in my intent was yeah. more from the lens of it's winters it's so cold outside, like it's like negative degree temperatures and I want to still bike ride. And then I went to like Mech. I looked at a whole bunch of other brands. And when you look at like Gore-Tex stuff, it's super expensive, even if you're at Mech. So it's like, yeah. if I'm yeah. if I'm paying like what, $50, $100 more, I can just get Rafa. Why not just get Rafa then? Why not? Looks like their branding worked on you. Position. It totally worked. It's, you know, how, what, okay, here's the funny story. So, you know, how you were describing like how Rafa embedded itself and got synonymous with like coffee culture and then it becoming this lifestyle experience as well. And I like, I yeah. love the kind of content that they put online. Like the content and storytelling that they do is so yeah, freaking fantastic. on. Oh my God. Like, this is my full, like, cause I tried to break down, like, how did I even fall in love with? Rafa, how did that even happen? And I kind of broke yeah. it down and I sat down and reflected on it. And I was like, actually, no, I was bike riding and I reflected on it, which was, I'm really a big fan of this company called Work & Co. And their founders are bike riders. So Joe Stewart, Philip Memoria, those guys would write about Rafa and then they finally got Rafa as their client and they redesigned Rafa's website, Work & Co. Oh, very cool. And so I saw the website redesign and I was like, oh, sick. I was just impressed by the design. I was not even thinking about bike riding and cycling at that point, but I was just in love with the way they executed the site, the user experience, yeah. like the way they did like the product layouts. And then finally, when I got my bike and I got into cycling, I was like, wait a second, those guys were talking about Rafa. They're like, there must be something cool about it. So I went to the yeah. YouTube page and I think, you know how you get like sync into a series of episodes like if you watch like game of thrones or whatever i ended up watching yep. pretty much all the youtube videos of rafa <laughs> <laughs> i couldn't i couldn't stop watching them yeah. i watched I, I literally sat down and watched everything paid so close attention like the cinematography the storytelling the edits 
the colors, every piece of content that they were putting out was like, I, I totally understand. Um, there are other brands that, that um, produce really good clothing, right? Like the, like I'll wear Castelli, I'll, a bunch of them. Yeah. But as like a, as a experience, like Rafa just stands above. And I, I totally agree. They put on races. They put on this race in the UK that was, uh, well, I'm going to forget the name of it, but it was an evening race. And like the whole thing was this ridiculous production. Imagine just like, so you know their brand, right? So think of like those colors, but in the middle of the night with like lights and cameras and music and some of the fastest, because it's invite only, some of the fastest racers you can imagine whipping around this criterium track which is just built yeah. in the middle of, I don't know if it's UK or France, it's somewhere in Europe. Right. But like, it's, it's the spectacle of the brand, right? Mm -hmm. Like you're there to see cycling. Yes. But it's the way that Rafa presents cycling to you. That is for me anyways. And I think obviously for you resonates so strongly that like, there's just nothing that compares. Yeah. It's, I mean, and then here's the other things which were really interesting, which I, uh, which I found that added to my existing story in my brain about the brand. Like it read like all these little interactions that I had reinforced what I believed. So yeah. I ordered a couple of products. Okay. I want the leggings and I want the jacket, the Gore-Tex jacket. And then I got myself the shoes and everything. And I ordered everything and it, it arrived and it turned out that the sizes were all of them were wrong because cycling <laughs> clothes. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. There's that lesson to learn too. Because <laughs> before this, I have never ever in my life worn like this is okay. So I buy cycling gear for the first time, and it's Rafa. So you know, yeah. I, I guess it's just a coincidence. I guess so. All of the sizes were wrong. So I just packed them, sent them back. No questions asked. And I just said, could I get the other sizes? They said, so they, so I got all the other sizes and the sizes that fit me, I kept those and then I sent everything else back. And, um, after I got that first set then I knew my sizing, my size is a medium. And then I was able to just order that. I would just go to the website and say, okay, medium, blah, blah, blah. And done. Yeah. See, if you just asked me, I would have told you you were a medium. Ah. Uh, well, I didn't. Yeah. yeah. But I thought know, it was a large. The other something is, no way. No way. You, you're no way. <laughs> <laughs> but, but here's the thing. Here's the thing. What you found out, just like all other fashion brands, you found out your size for Rafa. That's exactly. It. Not your size. It's very yeah. different. Yes. So it's basically the core collection is different from the pro collection. So the core collection is, yeah. is a little bit more looser, comfortable. And the pro collection yeah. is like all about aerodynamics and speed and yeah. snug fit. You, you really shouldn't go for the pro collection unless you have like single digit body fat. Otherwise. Yeah. Uh, it's not. I, 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 I know. Yep. I, I yeah. <laughs> so at the time, and this is the truth. I'm not making this shit up at the time when I ordered it, my body fat percentage was, I think, 12 or 11 and when i started when i got the gear i was riding pretty aggressively i i had subtracted it to the best was like eight percent for like a month wow. and then That's it good. went back up to nine yeah. so i maintained that for a while 
but now I'm like back to, I think like 24% body fat and I'm like put on so much weight because of my injuries and stuff. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a totally separate topic. Yeah. 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 But the feeling, but, what, but what's interesting, what's interesting just about the Rafa thing, which I think like from, from you and I, we can have an interest because it seems like we're kind of talk, talking about something that's really interesting here, which is like, yeah, they don't really, it's a commoditized space, right? Yeah. So like clothing is clothing. Yes, you can, you, you can sometimes get better tech, but like by and large, it's the same shit everywhere. Um, but yeah. they have positioned themselves and created this like media uh, machine around them yeah. that it's just lifted the entire brand. And like you and I will sit here and talk about Rafa, who in reality is probably no more or less special than another like you know major major apparel company like sugoi or something except that it's positioned differently like i just relate differently and you know we can geek out over the the design of what we're looking at not just the product itself super cool. seriously yeah like they pay so much attention and this brand was started in 2004 i'm looking at their uh website like right now they started in yeah. 2004 and Simon uh, Motram Mot- is a British guy. So I, I wonder what the correct pronunciation of his last name would be. Simon Motram, maybe. Uh, not sure. <laughs> <laughs> so I try to pretend I'm like a British guy. But yeah. like everything, like from their website to the content that they put out on social media, to the videos that they make, to uh, the actual gear itself. Oh my fuck. Yeah. I'm so obsessed. It's like the, it's the pinnacle, right? Like if, if I had my own, like if I had my own company and I had to worry about putting myself into the world, that's what I would aim for, right? Like you were, you're not only your uh, brand, but your positioning and your strategy, the yeah. multimedia you create, the events yeah. that you put on and the product are all stellar. Oh Yeah. Yeah, spot on. Like every yeah. Even in fact, you know what the what the other really like this is so subtle, but like on Rafa, you have like these milestones and challenges. And yeah. and the little thumbnail style graphics that Rafa puts out are so freaking sick. Even those like that's such a like frivolous, like such a tiny expression of the brand. But those are like so meticulously done, even like the the little booklets that they've made. Um, in fact, you know what I'm thinking? I should give some of those as like Christmas gifts to certain people. They're just like fun cycling uh, books yeah. and stuff. I'm looking at their website right now. Holy shit. But it's like, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, you, they're afforded the luxury, right? Yeah. to worry about the smallest of details which it's it's an interesting thing right because at some point they weren't making enough money or positioned well enough to worry about yeah. that shit yeah but they but they got successful enough and spent money and time in the right places where now all of that is additive to the brand right and and the stuff you're talking about these like micro interactions and micro graphics and these things that that as a designer you might pick up on and you might really appreciate the craft of it but as someone who isn't uh, necessarily looking at it that way, you're still recognizing the difference, uh, you know, subconsciously. 
right? Because the whole experience yeah. is so polished and so complete that you're not yeah. put in a position where where like where there's nothing to notice. You know what I mean? Like you, you, there's nothing distracting. I guess is what I'm getting at. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It's it's insane. Okay. You know what? Here's the here's the really funny and yet fucked up part that plays in my brain. I'm like, because <laughs> when I look at because when I look at companies like Rava, right? Yeah. From every single touch point, from the emails, emails that they like all the communication, all the communication umbrella of like uh YouTube videos, social media graphics, emails that they write and send, the copy, the tone of voice, the little touch points, the website copy the product packaging, the little nuggets of notes that they have written on the packaging. There's so much detail there. There's so much work and effort that goes into it. as designers, as people working in creative departments, we know that there's so much work that goes into all of that. And when I look yeah. at them, I'm like, they're like literally got their, they've covered everything. And when we, or when I, let's say, try to do that at scale, it's so hard. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Like imagine like, uh, like I, it's something I'm worried about for in my own world next year, but think of all of the touch points that they have as a business, every sales event they go to every like lookbook they create every, uh, well, I guess not now, but like every event they'd go to, right? Like every single time that they have the opportunity to put their brand in front of the customer, my perception anyways, is that they have done a fantastic job of it. In the last few years, I don't, every time I've thought or seen or you've been exposed to the brand, I have never once been like, hmm, you missed the mark. You know what I mean? Or something seems a little off. Never. Not once. It's so meticulous. <laughs> Seriously. I, yeah. Yep. That's, it, it's so impressive. It is, it is really impressive. Yeah. But here's, here's why it's, here's, Here's why it matters, right? So like, um, you know, if, if this whole conversation has really actually gotten us to a point of just talking about why branding matters, why the way that you present your business matters, because, um, you know, I, I think anyways, would love to know your perspective, but I think you don't always notice companies that do it poorly, right? Like, like the delta between no brand uh, consideration strategy great brand consideration strategy and execution and then what we're talking about is like of the rafas and apples of the world where it's it's so 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 well considered and well thought out the, the amazing ones stand out in your mind and so i think that's the thing that probably is really meaningful here is that um, you don't notice necessarily when it's done poorly but you definitely notice when it's done well because you have like an emotional connection like we're getting excited talking about this brand that like neither one of us owns any part of, you know, we shouldn't really give a shit, but we do. Right. Well, and so I'm likely to spend money there. We've bought into the brand. Like we own their products yeah. and the, okay, here's That's the true. other thing. This is okay. Now here's the really nuanced conversation, which is that now you look at a brand like Rafa. Now they have so many different products. They have physical products. They also have, so you could say that, okay, there's a product dev team, which designs and executes and there's logistics, there's operations, supply chain, there's all that stuff. And then return, like when you're returning, setting up like a call center or, you know, FAQ, all that stuff 
that a regular product company might also have at some mm-hmm. sort of a scale. You could argue scale, right? And then you also have yeah. the fr- one end of it, which is like the advertising communications part of it. But whenever you talk to like specifically digital product companies, you know, like a Google or like some like something famous, like what's that one coin square or something. I think yeah. I, I don't want to take wealth simple example because they killed it. They do a, such a fantastic job. Like I would say Rafa what Rafa did to cycling is what Wealth Simple did to investing. My point here was that everybody's like, because when you see like sometimes like digital products are so shitty in terms of how they're executed, but they work great. They work great. Like I know like yeah, yeah. Craigslist, I love Craigslist. It works great, but it looks like shit. Is it deliberate? I don't know. But they always argue that, oh, you know, we don't have enough resources or there's not enough time. I find myself saying those things all the time. That, oh, we didn't have enough resources, enough time. How do they? So whenever I find myself saying those things, I'm like, but then how did like people like Wealthsimple or freaking Rafa or Apple, they don't have infinite budget. Nobody has infinite budgets. How, like, like what are they doing differently that all the rest of us are not? Or what is it like about process? Is it about priority? Like what? Because you you get what I'm saying, right? Uh, yeah, 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 no, I do, I do. I, I don't know that I have, a, I don't have an answer per se. I don't work at any <laughs> companies, right? But, Same. but the thing that maybe, aside from saying like they literally threw money at the problem, and I think they just picked the right agencies to work with because they're, they're they didn't do it in house, um, at least not not to get to where they were. Like, it, well, simple is really interesting because when uh, their early commercials and positioning was. Um, I don't think it was particularly great, but they sold, at least for Canadians, they sold this idea of, you know, low cost, high return investing, which was something that, you know, was happening in the States more. Um, but then when they did the, that big rebrand, I don't know if you remember when they like took over Union Station and just plastered their advertising everywhere. Um, whoever, and I don't know, and we can find out who did it, but that was the moment, right, where they did the TV commercials of like... Me as a human being, I have too many things to worry about. It was brilliant. Like it it immediately changed the way that I think the brand was perceived. And I wonder if it, what it, what it was, was that they did two things. They hired the right creative leader who could then hire the right uh, branding agency or partner. And there's a combination of the two of them that, you know, they had the right headspace to think about the problem in the right way. And then you know, that, 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 that kismet experience created a really fantastic product. Yeah. But this is like a double click into that first point, which was, and I find sometimes myself saying these words, which is, you know, if like the design isn't that good or, you know, I necessarily didn't have enough time or something, my excuse is always like, if the design is shit, like, oh, but this is, more focused about the functionality and the outcomes and the strategy or whatever. But then like, does Rafa ever find themselves saying those things? No. Does, you know what I mean? Like, like it's so easy to say, Oh, but you know, the stakeholders didn't agree or, you know, the uh, business objectors are different or this is about the functionality. It's like, yeah. Okay. But it's like, when you look at the level of execution of like an Apple, or uh, 
what's it called, Rafa or Wiltsimple, who've kind of not only redefined what the category looks like, but how people perceive that thing itself. Like before Wiltsimple, I don't know anybody who was able to take something so complex and boring and make it so simple, digestible, consumable, and bring a level of fun to it and sex appeal to it, right? I feel like their designers are not sitting there saying, oh, I'm hiding behind this whole like, oh, but this is like a strategic and stakeholder. I find myself stuck in that problem all the time because it's like, I know that timelines are like by the week sometimes or by the day or, you know, there's not enough resources. I don't have enough team. There's all these challenges. I, that's what I'm like constantly trying to think about like, how are these guys doing it? I just think it's timing maybe. Like I have no idea. At all, at all of those examples, they didn't get, they didn't worry about this at the beginning, right? Like you had to build the app for well simple. You had to build the computers for Apple. Rafa had to put clothes together, right? Like yeah, yeah, yeah. they had to just produce first. But at some That's true. point That's a good point. Yeah. Right. At some point That's you really have the resources, which are like time and money, to say, okay, we need to invest on, on the branding side. So that's, I guess that's when you would engage with someone, you know, who's really, really great at branding strategy and the creative side to help you. Because we've talked about this with, with uh, your experience. It's not just help you create the brand. It's help you uncover what you need the brand to be, what your vision of the brand can be. And so I think like it's that combination of having the right creative team along with the right creative leader with the right vision. And maybe that's what gets you there. That's actually a really good point because it's, not necessarily about what you look like on day one, the point in the journey they're in right now, you know, well, simple yeah. or Rafa that we're looking at is this is not their day one. This is probably like day yeah. 1,600 or something. Right. Yeah. And it's a cumulative. So we're seeing a compound and compounded and cumulative effort. Right. So yeah, that's, that's actually sure. a really good point. So I think yeah. to look at these brands that are doing it really well you can actually look at it from like okay this is really inspirational and all that stuff but at the same time i try not to get like disheartened that oh my work sucks <laughs> yeah but it yeah 100 you have to acknowledge that there it's the right time uh, you have to do it at the right time and if you were to spend all that effort early before you've you've proven you have product market fit it'd be a waste right like you'd, you'd spend all this time and money trying to optimize your brand when you can't even deliver on, on, you know, whether it's your product or, or your, whatever it's Rafa, it's like, you know, a pair of bib shorts, you can't even make them. So it's just a waste of time and effort at that point, really wrapped up. Right. And you're like, oh, this is, this is, you, you want to get, you want the shortcut and there is no shortcut. That is actually such a good point. Yeah. It's, it, yeah, there's actually no shortcut to it. it. There's so much work that goes into it. Like even like when we take an example of Apple, which is more common, is that when they started out, they didn't, they were always actually focused on design. So maybe let's not take that example, but let's just focus maybe on the Well Simple and the Rafa, which is a little bit more closer to home. Even with Rafa, of course, they didn't look like this on day one, because I know that this website didn't exist till work and co-designed <laughs> yeah. it. What I appreciate is that when we look at these, and as a designer, I can really appreciate that they really invest the time and effort to make that experience really smooth. Like the online e-commerce bit, bit to the actual products, the finish, the stitching. Like there's so many things that are designed and at no point do I feel as a designer that there was a shortcut taken. Or maybe, you know what? Like 
for them, there's, they feel, oh shit, you know, we could have done this a little bit better, mm-hmm. but we don't know. I'm sure they took lots of shortcuts, but I'm also sure that they put a lot of processes in place to help them like move faster. Right. So like, so you're, you're uh, experimenting at a high level, right? So if you hit on something, it's already like 90% of the way there. And if you're missing, you're missing at like high quality content, but the cost to get there is really low. Like maybe you have a design system or asset libraries, or you're working off of things that are already, you know, production ready. So in that case, you know, yeah, you're making mistakes, but, but you can turn those mistakes you can throw away the mistakes rather, and you can turn the things that end up being really good into production ready assets uh, really quickly. So you and I would maybe not notice that, that, that they screwed up 10 times, right? Right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think this is making a lot of sense. Is that when we look at the finished version of something, you know, which we're looking at now, it's so hard to imagine sometimes how they how to just do it right out of the gate. But actually it's a long process. It takes a lot of time to get to a level like this and where they've also kind of really honed in on who they are, what their vision is, what they stand for, what kind of products they want to make, who are they catering to over the period of time, even they've kind of ironed that out. So now that naturally reflects in not only the actual products that they make, but the storytelling that they're doing, the tone of voice that they have and as a brand, how they, engage with their target audience. I'm actually kind of thinking about which is going to be interesting is to ask you, it's like, you know, how many times have you done this sort of work and you haven't really been thrilled with the work, but either the client or someone you work with is like, this is really amazing. Like they really like what you've put together, but because you're the one who created it, you're always, you know, extra critical about your own work too. Oh shit. Yeah, that's actually a good point and good question at the same time, which is as the creator, you know, of the thing of whatever that thing is, you know what the problems are and what the, (laughs) you know, nobody else knows. It's like, I've seen like so many times, like on stage when like a kid is on a stage doing like a theater play and they forget their line. Like nobody knows that you forgot your line because they know the story that you're telling them. So naturally I feel like in that same vein, whatever story, let's say for the sake of, let's say if we're just talking purely just website for rafa now whatever the shortcomings are on the website unless we went through it with like a microscope put it under a microscope and started looking at every little thing it'd be pretty hard to find what the shortcomings are but the people who created it know exactly what the shortcomings are yeah and we have blinders on anyways right because like we land there we already like the brand we're like oh this is so great and we're there to shop (laughs) usually so (laughs) blinders on you are so yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, like, yeah. You're not a, you, you probably don't even notice the shit that you're like, right? You're just like, oh, I, I just want to buy this and I love this stuff. And, uh, oh, I like that picture. And I like the way they laid this out. Like you notice that stuff, but you're not there to critique anything. You're just there to buy and, and enjoy it, right? So we probably miss a ton of shit that whoever designed it might be like, oh, I wish I'd gone back and fixed that or that was a bit different. So... Right. And the, the the double thing here in this situation is that I'm a big fan of the company, let's say that designed the website and the company website and the company itself. So yeah. for me, it's a double whammy. I'm like super biased, super, like I have all the blinders on. I'm just like in super awe fanboy. 
and in awe of everything that they're doing, like from like the font selection to the photography to the actual <laughs> products to to the packaging. You know, like, you know, <laughs> yeah, you know who we are. We're we're the front row at an Apple conference <laughs> who stands up and claps when they say something ridiculous, right? Like. Have you seen that Trump meme? There's a Trump meme where they're like, there's a bunch of sheeps and they're looking at a lion and they're like, he says it what how it is, right? And the lion's like, I'm going to eat you. <laughs> there's definitely blinders on, but irrespective of, you know, that the journey that they're on and that we're looking at the final product, despite all that stuff, not enough companies are doing it and it's so easy to see a distinction between people who do invest in these things like even like if you look at like airbnb now if you look at like when they started out it looked like such a shabby right and and part of their story one of the interesting things that i when i was reading about airbnb's success was that early on they were not getting any bookings and how they were able to multiply that in the beginning is that they personally went to the Airbnb listings and they took really nice photographs and that started getting them the initial bookings yeah. that they were looking for. So that does matter. Oh, that's, yeah, that makes that's, that's such a great example. It's like, could you imagine if you're, if you're like, Oh, I want to go on vacation and I want to book this room and you're looking at, you know, the lights are off. It's dingy. It looks like a motel six, right? Like, oh. Do you imagine if your entire business Imagine if Instagram, their entire business model was people taking pictures, but they they didn't give anyone any filters, right? Or that was was their thing at the beginning. Like the filters are what what made Instagram Instagram at the beginning, right? So otherwise, it's just people's crappy pictures. That is such a good point. And I remember early on, everybody's Instagram looked like food pictures, which were over. They're like 10 filters on one cappuccino. (laughs) (laughs) Like you're making me want to go look at my first Instagram picture ever, which I'm sure is like cringe alert. But exactly. But but that's a good point though. Right. And and I think that the point is that like the brand creates trust, right? Because what, what Airbnb did is that they built trust in you as the consumer that if you uh, you were to you know rent that place, you'd actually be getting you know a good place with a with a reputable rent renter whoever was renting it right. Uh, so they built the that host. trust and comfort the host. with you. Yeah, the host, the host, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So they built that comfort, and so you get over the hurdle of something new, new tech, new experience, new whatever. And it's like okay, this is probably just as fine as if I got a normal hotel. Yeah, it's funny how like. But when they weren't getting bookings by just bringing good photographs, they were like, that was the only thing they needed to fix. Like the, the website was fine. The code was fine. The name was fine. The one thing that changed the game for them was photographs. And people ask me like, are photographs important? I'm like, I give them this example. Well, yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's interesting because I wonder if it's like, certainly it's the photographs to help, but like what you needed to change was the humans. Right, like they didn't have a problem uh, as far as the product goes. What they had was a was a consumer problem. Consumers didn't trust the brand. They didn't. It was too new. Like the experience was too new. So you had to like you had to address the underlying fears, I guess, of the consumer. It's like how much of your brand 
does that, right? It's it like it's not just oh, I have a pain. You're going to help me market how to, how this company solves that problem. It yeah. has to be more than that, right? Like I need to build an affinity. I need to build trust. Yeah. So I think having good photography is helping you build that trust and credibility because when you see something that's photographed well and the place looks clean and hygienic that yeah. those are like subtle cues it's like you know like that time like when you walk with like let's say for people buying a new house people are like looking at new houses they're going into different houses and then you walk into a certain house and you're like you feel like yeah this has this place has a good vibe and you're saying those words, you're feeling those emotions, but what's happening analytically in your subconscious is that you're all, you're seeing, you know, your sofas in that corner, you're reading there, you're going to be sitting and reading there, having your coffee there, you're going to be having the TV over there. So subconsciously what's happening versus what you're feeling emotionally are building that trust and that good vibe in that moment. Yeah, that's really that's so cool because it jives with like my experience of buying my condo was such like a whirlwind experience, right? Like now that I've, I've painted my place, renovated it. Like I care when I smudge the paint the wrong way and I'm like, Oh, if I were to sell this, no one would buy it. But then I think back to when I did my tour of the place, like you're, there's too much to take in. I, I wasn't even really paying attention to the place so much as to what you were just saying, which is like how I could see myself in it which totally changes the the whole experience. Cause now it's like you said, it's more emotional than it is analytical. So I'm like, do I resonate with the emotions that are, are generating at this place rather than do I think that this has the right square footage and does it have whatever, right? Like all this kind of stuff. Yes. So there's like two points there. One is that people, and this is so true, especially for when we're doing like communications and product, whatever is people, look at things as it relates to them that's one and then two is something that feels emotionally right first you can post rationalize it analytically later and say okay you know if this feels good and this feels like a solid decision then you can go back and say okay are the numbers lining up is this like sound financial decision and then it's like victory but if something doesn't feel emotionally right you can never sell it analytically that's such a good point. So first you have to connect emotionally uh, with something. So if you're, if you're the person trying to create that experience for your customer, like you're creating the brand, the, the structure, you're trying to find a way to connect with the human on an emotional level first. Yeah. Yeah. And then to get them in yeah. and, and a little bit invested. And then once they're in and invested, then they can evaluate on the analytical components to sort of, to check their their gut reaction is that would you say that's fair yeah i say the only place this doesn't apply is procurement departments in big companies <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah fair enough for them it's like what is the lowest number possible <laughs> <laughs> i mean you could argue that that's oh, also an emotion yeah. but i think Procurement uh, departments in practice and in theory, when they're at work, are purely analytical people. But once they leave the office, yeah. then they become emotional beings all over again. I'm really curious from your perspective, based on this conversation, how do you create an emotional moment for the, for the customer? 
And I'm, right. I'm sure that even that is co- is is nuanced and complicated. But like, if you look at like uh, a company like Rafa, now let let's say if I just break down just the photography. Now, the photography again. If we go back to that point that people re- look at the world as it relates to them. So when you see this beautiful photography that Rafa has done or that Airbnb example that we were talking about, how did photography all of a sudden change and start getting them those bookings? It's because now you had clear, clean pictures of that environment and you could see yourself in that environment. So for Airbnb, you could see yourself, you know, sitting on that couch or laying in that bed and it looked like comfortable and clean. And you could see that clearly. And so the decision making, that trust and credibility happened intuitively and analytically, the price afterwards seemed good. Right now, in Rafa's case, when you look at like beautiful photography, you see these guys like and girls cycling in the Alps between snow and the rain. You imagine yourself. So they capture yeah. all those little subtle things that a real cyclist experiences in their photographs. It's like being one with yourself, having solitude and free with your thoughts, you know, that escape. Mm. So they show depict that in their photographs. So they're not just mindless photographs. When you look at a certain photograph, you're like, wow, it's amazing. But then you relate to it from the lens of, ah, okay, I remember that time when I was writing like this, or I see myself writing like this through photography. For example, you're creating relatability you're creating context, you're creating that emotion experience. A lot of it is unsaid. It's like, I'll give you an example. This is such a beautiful example, which is, I think this is like the creative head of Wolf Allens giving this talk. And he basically describes that don't tell people there's a red ball, tell them the merits of the color red, and then tell them the merits of a circle or a globe or the earth. So if I'm talking to you about the color red and earth in your mind, you already have the image of a red ball with visual design and branding. You're kind of doing that. You don't want to tell people everything. You want them to imagine it and let their inner voice tell them because that is more believable because I didn't say it. You said it to yourself in your brain. That's very good branding is that you're not saying anything. You're giving people the context and enough evidence and let them paint the picture in their own brain and let their inner voice tell them what the story is. Yeah, no, that sounds amazing. And actually, as you're, you were talking about that, tell me if you disagree, but the, the other company that comes to mind immediately that does this really well is Nike. Because like yeah. Nike is running. Running is Nike. And I know you could, yeah. you could, you could argue that like there's Puma and Adidas and whatever. Yeah. But at least in North America, Nike is running. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They've made themselves synonymous with running. But it's I think it's more than just running. It's about, again, it's like if you think about all the communication that they do, the advertising, yep. the photography, it's all about, you know, the grit, the hard work, the sweat, the, the glory, the guts. They depict yep. that through the tone, the voice, the imagery, the, the motion of like films and everything. So you're actually experiencing that. So analytically, you're like, they are giving you, okay, this is made out of this thing. You know, it has like the most latest rubber or synthetic or whatever that thing is. So they're giving you a little bit of analytical information, but that emotional hook is so strong. You're right. And I didn't thank you a disservice because 
Nike never presents themselves. Nike never talks about their products ever, never, ever. They, they don't even really talk about running. Nike is just sport. That's a very broad statement. And I remember I listened to, uh, on audible, I listened to shoe dog. I don't know if you've, you've listened to it or read it. No, not yet. Ah. Oh my God. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast. <laughs> yeah. That cat looks like it doesn't give a fuck. <laughs> no, it doesn't. He doesn't care. He doesn't care at all. <laughs> Poor right. Guy. Yeah. Um, so sorry, you're talking so about saying, Nike. So, Nike, but uh, so if you haven't read it, I actually suggest reading Shoe Dog, which is like the story of Nike. Um, yeah, Phil Knight. But but yeah, Phil Knight's sort of memoir about about Nike. And the story itself is fantastic. Yeah. But I'm remembering now that there's a chunk in it that actually talks about Nike as a brand mm-hmm. late in the book, where they're really worried about like getting away from just being a shoe company. And they become something much larger than that. Yeah. And I think that, you know, as I'm connecting the dots here and what you're saying is they never talk about a product. They always talk about how you feel. Yeah. The, the, um, the experience you'll have. Right. Yeah. And then you naturally just connect, you know, uh, wanting to f- to experience wor- the world in that way, or wanting to feel that way, and yeah. then it's natural to be like, "Well, Nike sells a thing that lets me kind of do that, right?" So, exactly. So they're attaching themselves to that feeling. So it's like whenever you get that feeling, you want Nikes. It's like brilliant. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That makes that makes so much sense. And, and then yeah, that really helps because again, the way that you're explaining it and the way that I'm sort of like now looking at these companies, the, especially the, the, and the ones that I'm picking stand out, right? They, they, they stand out from their peers. It makes a lot of sense. Uh, yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. I, I strongly feel that even like, and this is where I have a lot of conflict with, especially like engineers or somebody from the procurement department is <laughs> Is that because <laughs> if you think about it for a second, is that when you're trying to negotiate a deal, let's say and this is such a nuance, such a specific thing, you know, you're trying to get like when you're like in a you're buying a commodity and you're focusing on the discount, you're focusing on the price, right? Those yeah. are so this necessarily doesn't apply to everything, but at a macro level, this is the this is, I would say, the, the common tapestry or thread that all these successful companies have used. But in certain cases, you know, where price and it's a commodity. But again, like if you think about it like this for a second, you know, brand doesn't matter. It's, it's all about the price in certain cases. Till this time, somebody turns that thing into a brand. Right. So I'll give you an example. Let's say yeah. you have something as simple as um, salt or sugar, or you have peanut butter, or you have oat milk, right? It's like, those are commodities till the time or coffee till the time somebody comes in and creates an experience around it and the feeling around it. Now you're like, now you don't compare coffee price 
to what you get at the grocery store. You compare it to, well, if I was having a Starbucks, it would cost me $5. Now I'm just having a, a Nespresso pod, which is like 75 cents. You're not comparing it to yeah. the pouch bag. So even a commodity, yeah. something that you would be so sensitive to in terms of price can become all about the emotions and price becomes secondary. Yeah, that's that's so true. Like now I'm thinking about something like Lululemon, right? Yeah, they make they make really expensive see-through pants. <laughs> <laughs> and they're they have managed to survive that disaster, that PR disaster, because they are synonymous with yoga and with like athleisure as a thing right it's another example of why it matters because inevitably you you may be in a situation in which your brand is under fire either externally or because you did something stupid internally and if you have that that cachet of experiences and brand loyalty you know hopefully you can get you can survive it right and you don't it doesn't really impact your bottom line that much and then you also have this analogy of you know oh forget the t-shape be like a comb, have like enough tentacles everywhere yeah, and strong, like have strong skill sets in a couple of things. Right. Uh, yeah. I was actually thinking, well, you know what? Like a designer is like an octopus. You have multiple tentacles and multiple things. And, and as an octopus, you're like this very smart strategic creature in the water and you can camouflage yourself and adapt to work in different uh environments you you went into like the realm of sashimi here uh, <laughs> which is delicious so i, I find it hard to argue with <laughs> so my point was that you know yeah that, yeah yeah that as a as a creative person you know as a designer you're constantly trying to think about business outcomes, but you're also trying to think about the production aspect. There's so many things as a creative leader that we're thinking about, but we should not forget that for the audience, even when we're making something for the audience, it's not just about the functional thing. It has to work great. It has to be a great product, period. That's hygiene. Yeah. But what's the experience that you can create on top of that? Like how much difference are Adidas shoes from Nikes or Pumas? We, like as a, as a consumer, I don't know. It's what's different and what's the value is all relative and how you emotionally feel about that thing. Yeah. And people tell me like, yeah, okay, you know, uh, like how do you quantify brand? Right. They're like, cause you can quantify sales, you can quantify users growth. Right. And I was like, okay, tell me one thing. How does the stock market work? How does valuation work? And they're like, uh, oh, because the valuation of a company is also based on perception, which is brand. So if you have yeah. a strong emotional brand that directly impacts the value of your company. If you don't have a consistent brand, meaning the customer experience at all of these various touch points with your product or, you know, service or whatever, yeah. you have to reintroduce yourself every single time. In particular, let's say the way that I introduce the company is not the same way you introduce the company. It's similar, but there's nuanced differences. It's got to be confusing for the consumer of that experience. And if you want to build advocacy and you want that person to either go back to, you know, they make a buying decision or themselves go to 
become an advocate inside of a company if it's if it's in a product of some sort. You want to provide them with a succinct story about who you are, why you exist, and why they should buy you. And if you're hearing three different ways of explaining the same thing, that's going to be either impossible or they're going to say the wrong thing or they're going to resonate with the wrong thing. And now you've sold someone on an idea or a product that doesn't actually you know, meet their needs and they get confused. It just seems like it's, it's extremely costly to do that the wrong way. Yeah. Yeah. To answer your question, there are a couple of things. One is, you know, there's this guy, Marty Neumeyer. I think he wrote the book called Brand Gap and Brand Thinking and all that stuff. He's like the, the supreme lord in the world of branding and defining, you know, what branding means and how to kind of do it. So he kind of describes, he's like, you know, branding is not about the visual design. It's about, it's not even about what you say, you know, uh, it's not even about what they say. It's more about like what people feel. A couple of years ago, I, one of my mentors, he is also from the world of branding. He wore, used to work at Landor, which is a branding firm. And he gave me this very interesting analogy. He's like, branding is just perception management. I was like, perception management? Is that PR? He's like, no. He's like, how people perceive you, you're constructing that. That feeling, that emotion that I'm feeling towards Apple. Why is so many people on earth feel the same way about Apple? Why isn't everybody like, of course, you know, there's the Android group, but the people who feel about Apple feel the same thing, right? In yeah. their own nuanced way. So that's been very well crafted and thought out, right? And so I was like, fuck, that actually makes a lot of sense. It's actually perception management and it's how yeah. people perceive you. So you control that narrative through the signals of branding. So the brand is the idea, the vision, the story, and the brand ing, the noise, the ing is the manifestation, which could be visual design, which could be like, I'll give you another example, which is so insane. The same person gave me this analogy. He's like, as a brand, let's say if one of your attributes is fairness, now you could say, okay, fairness, we have to be fair with our customers, you know, and we have to trade locally, whatever, right? But can you imagine if fairness trickled down into your financials, that you were fair in how much you paid your wages? A solid brand is not just about visual design. It's about how you conduct yourself. It's about everything. So it's like the lens through which you look at the world. And then that applies to everything that you do. When people think branding, everybody's just talking about this, like what they see with their eyes, which is logos, typography, design system. It's like, okay. Beautiful. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which is equally important to establish those things, but they're such a small part of the overall experience. It, it also extends into your brand as a company, for, as an employer, right? Which is a whole other side of things but um particularly again we're, th we're thinking this is always important but now with covid being a big deal and so many companies at least in the medium term working from home yeah and you know a lot of companies are hiring how you're perceived as an employer your brand your, your employer brand is so important now when when uh you know you're going to build a team that is probably distributed now uh, yeah. for sure, you know, working from home. So you can't like gel in the same way socially you would in person. Yeah. You're, you're competing 
for a larger talent pool, but also against a larger set of competitors. Like if you're in Toronto, you now all of a sudden need to worry about what what a company in San Francisco or New York or Hong Kong is is paying or 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 London. Uh, and and what what does the full comp structure look like? How do you balance these things? How do you structure the team? What do benefits look like? And now you have to worry about almost the global balance of these things and global employer brand rather than a localized Toronto employer brand. I think so much more difficult. And there's an element that makes it feel like it's related to what you're talking about, though. 100%. Like, here's, I'll give you an example. Now, this is how I would look at, like, let's say a Rafa. Okay. When I'm thinking brand. Okay. So one part of the brand is the actual product that they make. And then how they communicate, right? Which is the more like flashy, glamorous part, right? Oh my God, you know, look at their website. Oh my God, look at their photography and YouTube pages and social media. Oh my God, look at their actual product, which is such good quality. That's one part. Then one element is, okay, Rafa, I want to work there. That's creating in the talent's mind around the globe that I want to work for a company like Rafa creating that aspirational brand, not only from a consumer to purchase their products, but also for people wanting to work there because they also buy into the vision because it's so clearly articulated, right? Then the other part is think about vendors. Like I want to be a supplier to Rafa. I want to give them our fabric should be sold. And then they're going to put the Rafa logo on their site that we supply to Rafa. That's another stakeholder. There could be accounting firms like, oh, Rafa, that's the company that we we do all the accounting for them. You know, so you have like, so they, they will want to put Rafa's yeah, logo on their right. website. Right. Again, yeah. it's like when we think brand, the visual design and the communication part is just such a small part when we think of brand. People get so... 99% of the conversations I hear around brand is so shallow. It's like when you're looking at the earth's core and people are at the grass level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that, 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 that's, that's so true. And um, so how would, you, how would you get started? Let's say you have a company. And uh, like we were talking about before, like you were, you know, a well simple where at some point you're not worried about brand because you just need to build a product. But then yeah. you hit a point at which you start to look around you and you say, okay, we, we really should do something here. So if you're yeah. in that stage, how do you, how do you get started? Like first, is there anything that, that would stand out to you to say like, now's the time, like, is there any sort of trigger that, that, that you could think of? How do you just get started? How do you know the thing to pick? you know, that you need to do this. I can give you like a short version to it. uh, But I think we should do like a full thing on this, which is that at what point in your product, whatever that product is, that's why like some people, for some people, when I say for me, doing brand for an an apple, like a physical, like like a fruit apple and doing it for something complex as Salesforce, as the most complex software on the face of the earth. For me, it's the same approach. And people are like, what? No, that does. But I'm like, no. <laughs> because I'll give you an example why, why I'm saying that. The apple is going to be eaten by a human being. Salesforce is going to be consumed by a human being. 
And I know how human yeah. beings work and I make things for human beings. So the approach is to make things for human beings. So if it's an Apple or if it's complex as Salesforce, my approach is not going to change because my audience is humans. Perfect. So by the way, if you want to hire Paul, if you're listening to that, you can reach him uh, through this channel. <laughs> if you sell the human beings, Paul is your guy. <laughs> yeah, it's because it's so easy to get lost in the product or the engineering or the numbers and forget that all that complexity at the end or the simplicity is for a human being to consume, be it an apple to eat or a thing to do your timesheets in. I think that's a great call out. <laughs> we should probably pick a different time and actually like <laughs> dig into the topic because I'd, I'd love to hear like, actual details about that like how, how someone you know what will kind of be fun is like if you use pixel and pop as an example yeah right? yeah, how, yeah how would you how would you brand how did you how did we you know we talked about this how, how would you brand pixel and pop how would you promote it how would you think about creating that brand and putting that out into the world something we could actually share a little bit about yeah i i think that would be that'd be a lot of fun i think like giving some diverse examples because for example, Rafa makes gear and it's like, think of it like more like clothing, right? And yeah, whereas Wellsimple is purely a digital product. And then you have something like Pixel and Pop, which is content. The product is content. They're all yeah. very different, but ultimately all of them have been designed for people to use and consume. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And hopefully people will recognize that the best one is the one that they're listening to right now. <laughs> Affirmative. That's oh. correct. This is the yeah. best product. <laughs> oh. oh my God. If we God. were Rafa, we, we would have like a 30 person team creating these videos. <laughs> and, uh, and we'd have to charge you $800 to listen to each episode. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and you'd have to do it wearing the new $800 Apple headphones, too. Oh, my God. Epicness. Epicness.